Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at youtube.com slash cover three and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thanks for hanging out. Smash that subscribe. Smash that like. Come and join us in the chat. It is a big interaction day because, look, you, the listeners, you come, you show up live, but some of you also get us later and, and you also have questions. You've got thoughts that you want to add to the conversation. So we're bringing it back. By popular demand, the big old bag of mail, a return. We've been neglecting you, big old bag of mail. So we're going to do it this week. We're going to cycle in some mailbag questions next week, though we do have our superlatives on Wednesday. Then we're going to continue to do it, especially as the playoff race, the coaching carousel heats up, always brings out good thoughts from the listeners. But before we get to that big old bag of mail with questions on Tennessee, uh, thoughts on the COVID year of 2020, at Oklahoma, Notre Dame, and Ohio State, we begin with a headline from over the weekend as reportedly Texas A&M has suspended three freshmen because of what has been reported as a locker room incident. And all three of these freshmen are true freshmen, which means that they were part of the record setting class from this past cycle. Cornerback Denver Harris, wide receiver Chris Marshall, offensive lineman PJ Williams, all reportedly suspended uh, the athletic tech sags among the multiple outlets that are reporting this news. Some of them had seen uh, a little bit of playing time. Almost all of them came in with some amount of um, you know, pomp and circumstance, high recruiting rankings. And so I think that the biggest takeaway maybe is not what their availability is going to be for Ole Miss, but how this continues to pile on to a season of massive disappointment for a Texas A&M team that coming off of that incredible recruiting class has started with a one and three record in conference play with a three and four record overall. And when you're looking around for quality wins, it's hard to find them, especially as that Miami game will What's that worth now? Uh, three and four again after you lose to South Carolina, snapping a winning streak against the Gamecocks. Is this an individual, um, you know, is this an individual story or do you think this is part of something larger in College Station right now? I, I think there are two elements to this, right? Uh, so Denver Harris, I believe, was one of the kids who got suspended earlier in the year for driving like really fast on Instagram Live through a parking garage. Like dangerous. You know, could, could like hit somebody and kill them type thing. So that might be a continuation of behavior, although I'm guessing you're not driving a car in the locker room. So the locker room isn't probably something different. Uh, if these kids hit the portal, though, they will be pretty highly recruited out of the portal. Chris like, Marshall was too, by the way. I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. They were two of the four players. I think Evan Stewart was also part of 
that four Got player it. group from earlier, uh, the five star wide receiver. Now, this this is not the first time that this freshman class has been caught uh, with suspensions. You were right about that. Smoke yeah. was the other one, which is a good name for the story. Anyways, go ahead. And and Bowie's had some other stuff too. Uh, like he was a Georgia commit until he wasn't, and I'm not really sure that was his choice back in the day. So uh, there's a lot of freshmen in this best class of all time that I know for a fact other schools are just watching to see if they will transfer out because of cultural problems at, at Texas A&M. And it's easy to sit here and blame NIL for this. I'm like, oh, they, you know, they got these kids because of NIL, allegedly, although A&M denies it. But, I mean, guys, Lindale White on the Busting with the Boys pod just said that like he got 150 k in cash routinely at USC back, back in the days. So this is not really new. I, I, I think it's misplaced blame to be like, hey, NIL – is causing this. Jimbo Fisher left a cultural mess in Tallahassee when he left, right? That Willie Taggart had to kind of deal with, and Mike Norvell mostly has cleaned up now. It seems like they have some cultural problems there at Texas A&M, and I don't really know what incentive he has other than winning, which is an incentive, to change it because the guy gets $100 million guaranteed. If he wants to run the same terrible offense for five years in a row, he can. It's not like Ross Bjork's going to tell him no, tell him to get an offensive coordinator. He doesn't have to listen to him. Yeah, I mean, I do we is it like known what it was for, or are we still all just kind of speculating what it was for? I I didn't want to. It, it is funnier if it's, what is uh, been reported is what it is for. I have not seen any of the none of the sources when we were discussing this story in the newsroom. None of the sources that the our editorial staff felt comfortable citing wanted to go anything further than locker room incident. We're not an editorial staff or a podcast. So and <laughs> I was just, te- I was just teeing it up with the standards and practices of the CBS sports editorial staff. But yeah. if they were smoking weed in the locker room, anything, but well, we could say that the locker room incident did not rise to a felony level of incident, right? I don't know. I was going to say, if you're in South Carolina, it's the wrong state to be uh, trying that. Yeah, in. that's true. I just, I, I don't think it's a good sign when you have, I mean, it's first of all, if that's what the players did, it's their own stupidity for doing it and it's on them 100%. But I don't think it's a very good sign if you have players on your team who are like, yeah, let's just light up in the locker room. <laughs> like that's just, that doesn't tell me that there's like a very disciplined kind of situation going on at the team because if you're, it's like, why do you think you could get away with it? Like, there's clearly st- not enough going on there where they're thinking, well, no, we can't do that. We'll get in trouble. They're probably just like, yeah, who cares? Let's do it. <laughs> it's not a great sign. I mean, it is not reflective of a team that appears to be on the same page, 100% committed to the the kinds of success that we have seen. Everything that successful head coaches preach about, you know, the the messages that they try to deliver – even if these guys weren't planning on play, you know, no matter what the situation was, it it does not indicate that the South Carolina game was being taken seriously, right? And it kind of indicates that maybe they're not taking their job that seriously about being there. Maybe they're kind of already checking out. They don't care. If you hire Steve Adazio and DJ Durkin, though, can it be argued that you're taking your job as a head coach all that seriously as far as like creating a culture? Think about this. Like what that is not a good recipe to create good culture based on what happened at those guys' previous jobs. It's like, I mean, that's kind of foreseeable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a mess. Like maybe if they were winning games, it wouldn't, they'd be able to cover this stuff up and it wouldn't be as big of a problem. But when you can, 
when you compound what's going on with what's going on in the field, it's just an absolute mess. And then you toss in the fact that there's already plenty of people who are kind of wanting Jimbo to give up the play calling duties, but there's no real reason to think he's going to do that. He doesn't want to do that. He has no need to do that. It's just who's going to tell him, Tom? Nobody. Ross Bjork. Like, do you think Ross Bjork told told Hugh Freeze what to do? No, he's not going to tell Jimbo. That's the thing, because it's like. It's a situation where with that contract, it's like there's no pressure on him to change anything he doesn't want to change. Like he's got it in a situation where unless somebody's willing to cut a giant check and maybe there is, who knows? Texas A&M is Texas A&M. Maybe somebody gets so pissed off about the way the rest of the season goes, they do something very, very stupid. But it's just it's 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 a mess right now. It's not to say that they can't start winning games. It's not to say that they won't win games next year. But right now. It's terrible. It's not good. It's not a good look for anybody involved with that program at the moment. Um, by the way, Eric, the Oregon fan in the live chat right now, who says, come to Oregon, you're all good here. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's I'll, happening I'll... everywhere, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So to advance the more um, on the nose, like here's where we're going with this. So how bad can this get? Remaining schedule for Texas A&M. Ole Miss at home this weekend. Could Florida. Win. At home next weekend, at, Aub- at Auburn, uh, UMass at home on the 19th, and then LSU at home on the 26th. Four of the five remaining games that you would consider competitive are all at home. I think that makes it worse. I think if all these losses are in Kyle Field, and this team is flirting with bowl eligibility going into the LSU game, that makes this all much, much, much worse. Is Texas A&M a bowl team at the end of the year? It depends. I mean, if this is a sign of things just kind of snowballing and going out of control for the rest of the season, players checking out and people just kind of, you know, like we see it happen all the time, then they're probably not. But at the same time, like I just said, like you, those four games you just mentioned, the next four weeks are all very winnable games. If Texas A&M wins all four of them, I'll be surprised, but I won't be like completely, wow, I didn't see that coming because they're probably going to be favored in all four of those games. I mean, Auburn could be just as checked out. Yes. Right? Like I, I didn't put this on the rundown, but uh, Landon King announced he was going to enter the transfer portal last night. And there's a lot of speculation on Auburn Twitter now that Harson is basically doing this like player go thing. Like I'm not cool with you guys sitting out because you realize I'm going to be fired so that you, you preserve your eligibility as opposed to playing in this, in this wasted season. And it seems to have backfired because you got kids over there like, all right, cool. Yeah. I will just jump in the portal for, for the rest of the semester. And then Auburn will probably let me back once you get fired, Brian Harson. But like, what if Auburn checks out? A&M could beat Auburn. Uh, they could beat Ole Miss this weekend. Ole Miss is kind of on, on a bit of a slide here as far as quality of play. Now Ole Miss did beat Auburn and they, they're favored over A&M and I'm going to take <laughs> uh, Ole Miss to win that game. But, it's not crazy to think that uh, they could win. I will say that like there's there's an injury thing with AM two this year, to where like, Jimbo does normally not like to play young players, and he's had to play a lot of them. It hasn't looked very good. PJ Williams might have had to play, right? Marshall may have had to play more down the stretch. Those those are guys that they may actually have needed to play because they've got a bunch of offensive linemen out. We'll see how bad their blocking looks. Probably shouldn't have seven false starts at home, though. I mean, like the, the, you know, that was an issue at South Carolina. I think this weekend's game is huge. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. If they lose to Ole Miss, then we could see it snowball pretty quick from here. If they win, maybe they, you know, circle the wagons. If they, they, if they finish, if they run the table the rest of the way, 
and finish eight and four, they're going to end up in the daggum 24th spot of the final college football playoff rankings. An eight and four A&M team at number 24 in the final CFP rankings as it was intended. Mm -hmm. They'll hang a banner for that. I will say like we are deservedly so we are criticizing them, but like they've lost three in a row, but all three of the games were on the road. So like you were saying with all these games at home, it's not crazy to think they're going to play better at home. Right. And, and like, that's, I'm, absolutely being biased by recency where I think that it's nothing but negative, bad vibes. And that's why I think it would make it worse. Like if you want to see them get really angry and be very, like the, cause right now they're dealing with inflation era, Kevin Sumlin, like the results are Kevin Sumlin and they are paying double price. Mm-hmm. And if that continues and they finish seven and five or six and six, and a bunch of these losses are at home, then I don't know about who's cutting the checks or how the the power is dispersed between Ross, Ross Bjork and the power players around the program, but I don't know how I, somebody's hand will be forced to do something. Also, God knows what Lane Kiffin by who if the Rebels win this weekend. I mean, we, we, we'll be forced is kind of a passive sentence. Like, who do we think is going to do the forcing? Somebody who bas- can, somebody who can rally together enough money to at least justify. Maybe not this offseason, but at least letting it know to Jimbo Fisher that this fully guaranteed contract can be paid off. I think he'd be like, cool, you guys are weirdos here. I don't care about this collie and this yell stuff y'all do. And I, I said I'm a boots guy, but I can be a boots guy and go take over at West Virginia. Give, give me my give me my hundred million. I'll, I'll I'll have a fresh start elsewhere. The I think AM is completely at the mercy of Jimbo deciding that he needs to make major changes. It has to be him deciding it. I don't think that any booster pressure can do it. It's like, you're going to threaten me by paying me $100 million? It's it's or very 90 sim- now, 89? I think not. It, it, it's because he got paid, obviously, this year's money already. Yeah, it's very similar to what we talked about with Iowa. It's very similar situations where there's changes that need to be made, but the person who has to make those decisions really doesn't have the pressure to make them unless they really want to. All right, let's go ahead and dive into the big old bag of mail. Uh, A reminder, listen, we want you to be participating in this show all throughout the rest of the season. And one great way for you to do it is you go and you leave us a five-star review. And in that review, you put your question. We will throw it in the big old bag of mail and tackle it in a future mailbag episode. This question comes from the big old bag of mail. It comes from Jake. Dear Cover 3 Pod, Tom Fernelli called me a, quote, poor deluded bastard to start the season, and look where we are now. Tennessee is an undefeated top three team, and Tottenham is currently third in the English Premier League. My question is, why has Heupel been successful at UT? Remember, Heupel had three seasons at UCF, each one worse than the previous one. Nobody was clamoring for him to be a Power 5 head coach. So that's one part of this, and then he follows it up. Is there currently an underrated group of five coach that could succeed at a power five school? Are we going to see less splashy hires and more quote program fits? Love the pod. Go Vols, Jake. Well, Jake, you're right. You were a deluded bastard, and I'm sorry for calling you that. But I will also point out that while Tennessee's undefeated, Tottenham has lost two straight, and your manager is not committing past January right now. So things aren't looking great there. But for Tennessee, solid. Why has he been successful? It's it can't just be like his offense is a trick bag. I, I think that's a large part of it, and, and I, I don't want to say that as like a way that discounts it because yeah, he runs it extremely well. Yeah, like 
it, it those points count, right? If we're going to talk crap about Jimbo Fisher's offense, and we do because it doesn't create those easy, wide open downfield shots and take advantage of the freebies and the rules of college football, then we need to credit Josh Heupel's offense, which is really Art Browse's offense, for doing so. Like they're running just straight Browse Baylor stuff. It, it, it's not a whole lot different from what, at least from what my eyes tell me, from what Baylor used to run. Um, I think a couple things here. Number one, when that hire was made, I thought that he would not last there all that long, but it was a really smart hire because they had the potential for major sanctions to come and they would score enough points to keep people in the stands because fans like offense. I think I underestimated a couple things. And obviously they did too on the one of these things because they didn't start Hennon Hooker. They started Joe Milton, who really can't play, in my opinion, right? But eventually Milton gets dinged and they have to put in Hooker. Maybe Hooker would have taken the job anyway because Milton's just not an accurate player. And Hooker turns out to be really, really good. Something that Justin Fuente and Virginia Tech also missed out on him. So maybe there's a chance that guy is a really, really bad practice player relative to his in-game performance. I also thought he was not a very good recruiter at UCF, and I would stand by that. However, with Spire and the NIL stuff, Tennessee's recruiting has gotten much better. And I think that is a mostly a credit to their NIL. I know the staff works hard and whatnot, but if you just said, hey, independent of NIL is Hypel a great recruiter, I would say no. I also think he's a pretty genuine guy. People in the building seem to believe in him, and there is something to that. But hitting on quarterback, who you didn't even realize was the guy until your starter got hurt, the, a really fun, innovative offense, massive turnover within your division, and you had a really, really awesome NIL program kick in at the right time would be kind of the four keys there. I think he has a chance to last longer than I initially thought uh, because of that. Yeah, that was wrong. I think Hendon Hooker is a huge part of it because, like you said, he, they didn't name him the starter originally, but I think Hendon Hooker was a quarterback with a lot of talent who was at Virginia Tech, was in the wrong fit, comes in here, is in a, is in a good offense for him, is just actually kind of blossomed into a better quarterback like the talent that he had he's taking advantage of and just it's again like i've said i've watched him play the accuracy the decision making all that stuff he's he's mastered the offense and he's doing a terrific job and you're seeing that result but then i also think on the other side of the ball the defense has taken a step forward the defense was not great last year tim banks his defense this year is doing an excellent job they can you know they can stop the run and you know and you're looking around the sec right now stopping the run is pretty effective especially in the East, because there's not a lot of other Tennessees out there right now that you have to worry about being able to tear you apart through the passing game outside of Alabama. And we saw what happened there. It was 52-49 back and forth shootout. So I think Tim Banks deserves a lot of credit for what's happening there. And I think also Josh Heupel just being smart enough to hire former Illinois coaches and get that kind of pedigree into your staff because Tim Banks was the defensive coordinator at Illinois for a while during the Tim Beckman era. And the recruiting coordinator at Illinois during that era, Alex Galesh, is now the offensive coordinator. So a good quarterback, a good defense, and Illinois pedigree. That's why Josh Heupel's having success in Knoxville. The other thing I think that that I did not properly count for was just how bad the offense was under Jeremy Pruitt relative to its talent level. Like I knew Jeremy Pruitt was kind of like Crow Magnon, defensive coordinator, mm-hmm. and a really bad people manager overall. It just during his stint as head coach, I'm not saying he has to be forever, but I don't think I accurately figured out how much talent Tennessee had on the offensive side of the ball and how much that talent was being suppressed by the archaic approach that Pruitt was trying to run with his guys offensively. And so if you don't correctly gauge the baseline of talent there, your assessment's going to be wrong. So I I think that's another reason I was wrong about that. Sustainable over time? (sighs) Is is there a... a To what level? 
Well, like, can they play as a top five team consistently? Yeah, or? like, does, does the, the SEC, if they are dominant, if they win the SEC, the SEC will react. Like, there will be a response that goes across the SEC East, that goes across the entire SEC. I mean, there, there will be uh, a, de- a defensive response in the way that they are played. There'll be a defensive response in the way that teams are constructed. Like, you, there's no way that you can run the same plays forever at the very top of college football. As long as the hash marks don't change, yeah. uh, like they they take advantage of the geometry pretty well. But let's also realize that Kendall Bryles, literally Art's son, runs a very similar thing in Arkansas. And their offense does not look as good as Tennessee's because Jefferson is not a good thrower. I mean, by like elite quarterback standards. He does a lot of things well. He just he's not super accurate as far as throwing the football. So you do need quarterback to get this right. Now, if Nico is that dude then yes, it's very sustainable. I mean, you put like a legitimate five-star type talent at quarterback and he hits and plays like a five-star, then it's extremely sustainable. They're going to score 50 points a game and probably you know average 35-plus in the SEC. Yeah, I don't see why they can't be what Oklahoma was under Lincoln Riley because it's like, you know, you look at what Hendon Hooker's doing this year. He's going to be a Heisman finalist. He might win the damn award. That's going to be a great recruiting sell. You've already got Nico waiting in the wings if he hits, like you just said, but that's huge. And you could start, you become a very attractive destination for highly rated quarterbacks. And getting really good quarterbacks is an excellent way to be a good football team. <laughs> yeah. All right. What about the second part of this? Is there a group of five coach who might be a little bit underrated that we should keep our eye on? Not that you would have a hypo like or hypo level jump, but that might be a candidate to, uh, for a, a power five program that would be looking to make a new hire. Does Jamie Chadwell count? Or is yeah, that- I think so. Is he under the radar though? I mean, like he's not really under the radar. Um, I would listen. I think Jamie Chadwell to a lot of college football fans is not a, a name that clicks right away. That's fair. I mean, if, if you want to make the obvious comparison here, who's a coach who runs basically the exact same scheme, right? It's, Sean Lewis and his OC Souter there at Kent State. I mean, we had him on the show. I think if you're an AD, you're like, man, okay, so like the floor is that we're going to score a lot of points. The upside might be doing what Tennessee is doing now. And I, I, that, that's a pretty obvious one to me. Sean Lewis at Kent State. Uh, the Jamie Chadwell, not the same offense, though I would say innovative in mm-hmm. the way that it's taken option principles and oh, built them yeah. into an explosive mm-hmm. offense. Different offense, but like I said, Jeff Trailer, I think, is probably somebody who doesn't get a ton of national attention who's doing a very good job at UTSA. I've always been a big Willie Fritz guy. I don't think Willie Fritz is ever really destined for the Power Five at this point, though, but we see what he's been able to do with Tulane this season. He's got him in the AP Top 25, so those are a couple guys that come to mind for me. All right. Coming up on the other side, the 2020 college football season was unlike anything we had ever seen. Why did we see some teams flash during that season but not be able to replicate that success? We'll dig into that and more next. So this next question comes from Bud's Burner account. Frank Cross asked, no, I'm just kidding. We've been talking about this topic for like three weeks and all of a sudden a Frank CR6020 1636 <laughs> comes in with one. I'm like, huh. Interesting. I would not put that many numbers on my on a burner account. <laughs> now, Frank, you are clearly a Cover 3 fan if you are not Bud, or even if you are, you are a fan of Cover 3. What'd you say? Do you have a burner? Uh, I, I do, yeah, but it's not that. 
And I don't tweet from it. I just make lists because Twitter limits how many lists you can make on your on your real one. So I have a couple burners that I make like conference specific lists and I load them into tweet deck. Chip, do you have one? I doubt it. You barely good on Twitter on your own name. Yeah. Okay. I, I do not have a burner account. Do you have a burner account? I do. Um whose is it? What is it? I'm not gonna tell you my burner account that runs the whole point of a burner account. Okay. I just I, I yell at Josh Pate on it the whole time. That's all I do. <laughs> um all right, so Frank allegedly <laughs> asks uh no mention of marshawn lynch who was at the cow game and uh and having fun reliving his uh antics but here here's the question would love to hear you guys break down how the covid year was misleading on texas a&m indiana colorado at ketera relative to how they are now thanks love the show this is something we've kind of casually mentioned in the group chat before and i think on the show but just i don't know if we've done an entire like segment or question to it and it is something that interests me a lot because I feel like we view certain coaches and we, we try not to just look at single seasons. When, when, when we discuss coaches or, or programs, we look at kind of a multi-year sample. It informs how we think of them, where the trends are going, all that sort of stuff. And to me, I, I looked at it and there are a couple programs that if you take out their 2020, I, I do think we view them in distinctly different lights. And you might say, well, wait, it's not really fair to pull out a season. And you guys might say that. And I don't, I don't know that I totally disagree with that, to be honest. But I do think if you were going to pull out a season and exclude it because it doesn't match up with what we see in the season before, the season after, or this year, 2020 would make some sense to do so. Because if you talk to people in the sport, some teams really cared. And a lot of teams were just trying to get through this thing, man, on, on a week-to-week basis. It was not a normal year at all. And I think some of your results from that year are, are kind of skewed. So I want to throw out a couple teams here. Um, the first is Northwestern. So if you look at Northwestern, okay, like not a great program. Obviously, Fitzgerald has done a great job there. In 2020, they went 6-2 and two in the Big Ten. 2019, 2021, 2022, 3-19 in the Big Ten. Is that kind of a dead program walking that had a really, really experienced team come back in 20? and play in a year where it was hard to practice. You didn't have a lot of continuity in practice. You kind of just rolled with the team you had from the prior year. Got a lot of turnover luck. I, to me, that's a real obvious one that says, ah, you pull out that 2020 where they, they made the conference title game, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, do you want to go team by team or do you want to go with the sure. larger picture stuff? Yeah, we, we, can, we can go team by team. <laughs> I think 2020 was the end of a window for Pat Fitzgerald's program. They were because, terrible the year before, though, too. But in yeah. 2018, they were back in – yeah, 2018, they were in the conference championship game. They won the division outright. They were second in the division in 2017. They finished top 25 in the polls in 2015. For a program like Northwestern, like forget even the 2020 sp- period, from 2015 to 2018, three top 25 finishes in a four-year run is bananas. Yeah, I they're think, 36 and 17 in that span. Yeah, I think that staff changes, and I think that some of the other – like. The inability to have some, you know, consistent quarterback play. I mean, there's other factors that go into that too. But ultimately, for me, it was more like 2020 was the end of a window of unprecedented success for the Northwestern football program. I also think Northwestern is dealing with a lot of the same stuff Stanford is in the transfer portal era. Agreed. Um, all right, Texas A&M. 2020, they went eight and one. 
They went to the Orange Bowl. They argued they should have gotten in the playoff. I don't think they should have. I think if they did, the result would be similar to what happened to that Notre Dame team. 19, 21, and this year, they're 9-11 in the league. Losing record for your $100 million coach. Is that misleading to you? Do you think we judge A&M differently without the COVID year? Yes. Because I think that the last, like, in, obviously, 2021, they go into the year that talked about as a playoff contender. They they aren't. And then they put together a huge recruiting class this year, and they're talked about as a playoff contender, and they aren't. And I think that if in 2020 they weren't so close to getting to the playoff, I think that preseason expectation-wise, everybody would be a little bit more skeptical about what that team can be. So, yes, I definitely think 2020's impacted the Aggies. It's kind of the... Like 2020 is doing a lot of work if you believe in what's going on there. Mm -hmm. A lot of work. Yeah. Like last year, they started the season ranked number six, finished the year unranked. This year, they started the season number six. They are currently unranked. Exactly. All right. 19, 20, and 21. Indiana went six and 17 in the league. In 2020, they went six and one. Do we view Indiana differently without the COVID year? Yeah, no. Well, you're right about this being the COVID year, but I just want to point out, I never viewed Indiana differently. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Many yeah. angry Indiana fans will be quick to point out that I never viewed them differently. You you nailed it with close game luck and and yeah. Points off turnovers, all that kind of stuff. Also, like Kalen DeBoer, Mike mm-hmm. Lennox. Yeah. They they hit right on some stuff at the right time. Like if if the 2020 season, DeBoer was the OC for 2020, right? Yes. Yeah. Because then it was just one year at Fresno State, and then he's off to uh, Washington. Okay. I think that if 2020 had not been a pandemic year, I do think it would have been a cycle up season for the Hoosiers, and that their success would have been a spike in sort of the graph of how many wins they have per year. But I don't think that they dropped, they went 0 and 9 last year, right? In Big Ten play or 0 and 8 or 0 and 9. Yeah. yeah. I don't think. They would have been zero and nine, but I don't think they would have been much better than two and seven or three and six. I think it is fair to point out that A and M and Indiana have also had quarterback injury stuff in this span, especially last year. Uh, Indiana was rocked at quarterback, and I mean A and M obviously lost Haynes King. Having seen Haynes King play this year, I'm not really sure the level of loss that was, but certainly it was somewhat of a downgrade to Calzada. Uh, so maybe that's a, a fair counter to this. And look, I'm not saying that this is, I don't know if you can prove it statistically, but you do view these programs differently, I think, without the COVID year. The further that we get from it, the the less I think that it, it like Indiana is, as it is sitting, you know, in its current state in the middle of the 2022 season is not doing a whole lot of like, yeah, but re- remember that? Yeah, but let's frame it this way. And I don't, I don't even if I hate doing this, but is Tom Allen still the coach at Indiana, if not for 2020? Does Indiana fire a coach for going six and 17 in the Big Ten? I mean, like historically, are they better than a 250 or than a 250 win percentage in the league? I mean, so I, I, I said earlier that uh, Jimbo Fisher is inflation era Kevin Sumlin. Without 2020, he's not even Kevin Sumlin vintage. Yeah, they're worse. Mm hmm. And and more importantly, boring worse, right? Like one of the things we've always said on the show is you can't be bad and boring. And that offense, when you're not winning games, is unwatchable. 
I don't know. Just something I, I wanted to kind of... Oh, Colorado, too, kind of fits this, but we should probably move on because it's boring. It was only four games, and they've already fired their coach. <laughs> and also, they also had, like, the whole Mel Tucker leaving at the very last minute kind of... You know what I mean? So <laughs> right. like, yeah, yeah. That was, that was just crazy random chance. It was great while it was going on, though. I mean, you know, the the... There has to so much of college football and so much of the game of football on the like very basic level. People talk about overcoming adversity. I I found myself giving some credit. The teams that cared, the teams that decided that they wanted to, um, <clears throat> that they that they wanted to try to put a product on the field and and be proud of it. You know, I I don't want I didn't want to totally write it off, but you're hundred percent right if the question is being started as do we view these programs differently, then I think the answer is absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. All right. This next question comes from Mitch. Love the show, guys. Keep up the great work. Which struggling blue bro- blue blood program with a first time head coach has a better outlook over the next few years? Who you got? OU with Venables or Notre Dame with Freeman. Both have excellent recruiting classes lined up. Amazing how similar each team finds themselves after unexpected coaching vacancies. Thanks, Mitch in Kansas City. Notre Dame. Ooh. Hmm. I this is it's nothing to do with the coaching staff. It's nothing to do with any of that. It's just Notre Dame gets to continue being an independent. Oklahoma's joining the SEC. Oklahoma's life is about to get a lot more difficult than what they've been used to in the Big 12. And I say that as somebody who thinks the Big 12 is very good this year. But if you look historically, I don't think there's much of an argument of what the tougher conference to win in has been. So I think that Brent Venables and the Sooners moving into the SEC, like you're probably, I don't think you're just going to jump into the SEC and win 11, 12 games. Whereas I think Notre Dame could have a bad season this year and quickly rebound to 10 wins again next year. So I got to go with the Irish on this one. I, I think my answer was initially going to be agreeing with Tom, but the more I think about this, the more I think you can argue Oklahoma uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we both would probably agree that one of the coordinators is going to have to go for each of these teams, yes. most likely. Like, Do we think Ted Roof's going to last at Oklahoma? Do we think Tommy Reese is going to last at Notre Dame? I don't think so. Typically, you get to fire a coordinator before you yourself get fired, and neither of these guys are going to get fired in year two. Like, That's not going to happen. Notre Dame definitely has an easier schedule going forward, especially next year. Like they do have to play at Clemson and they host Ohio State and USC, which is not easy, but they're going to be favored, I think, in all other games. Louisville loses Malik Cunningham, NC State loses Devin Leary, and uh, Pitt loses a bunch of those guys along the lines of scrimmage. So I think they have an easier schedule, but Oklahoma's schedule is not that tough either. Arkansas State, SMU, and Tulsa in the non-conference and next year is one of the years they have Kansas as a road game, which like Kansas prove it to me that you're going to be a good team every single year. The difference to me though, might be if you have to replace a coordinator, can will you have more success doing it on the side of the ball you coach? So Venables may have to replace one on the side of the ball that he actually coaches defense. Whereas we have to see if Marcus Freeman can go out and hire an offensive guy and allow him to work and, and, and make it work. The other difference I might point out, and again, I'm just arguing this for the sake of argument because it's a show. I do think Notre Dame is probably the right answer here, is that Oklahoma has a commit named Jackson Arnold, who is a really good quarterback recruit, and Notre Dame does not have somebody on that level, in my opinion. So 
quarterback wise, I'm more confident that Oklahoma is going to have high level quarterback play than I am the Irish will. When the struggle started for both these teams, one of the things we mentioned on the show were let's see how these recruiting classes um, end up closing out because you can have a high recruiting ranking as the question, as the listener asked in the question, but that class can right before early signing period here in the, the closing weeks and closing stretch of the season, we could see some decommits. We could see some of these players open up their commitments. What is your level of confidence that both of these classes are going to be able to stay mostly intact heading into the early signing period? I think most will stay mostly intact. Notre Dame sits at what? Three right now. Uh, Oklahoma sits at, at four. I think it could be reasonable to see them potentially drop out of top five. I don't think that either will drop out of the top 10. I think they've done a nice job selling the future. And I'm not really sure how many other top kids they will close on down the stretch, maybe one, but ultimately I think they will remain top 10. Now, one of the great advantages to this show as we go live in the mailbag episodes is that, Hey, we'll take a, we'll take a live question from the audience. And so this question from Richard, debate that has been brewing throughout the entire episode. Cover three, settle the debate. What's the best division in college football? Richard nominates ACC Atlantic, Big Ten East, SEC East, and asks any other divisions I'm sleeping on. I think it depends on how you're valuing the Because I think... You're looking at the top three teams in each division. I would go at the Big Ten East. If I'm looking at the bottom of the division, I would go at the SEC East, and I don't think the ACC Atlantic wins either. You would those competitions. Wait, you would go SEC East for the bottom? I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Comparing it to the Big Ten East, I think the SEC East is stronger than the bottom of the Big Ten East. Yes. Whereas the bottom, I, I guess the Atlantic is probably stronger than the Big Ten East too. At the but bottom, I, I mean, because you have you have one legitimately bad team. Yeah, and NC State. I don't know what NC State's going to be the rest of the year, but no, the, the the Atlantic's better than the Big Ten East at the bottom too, for sure. I still think the SEC West. You mean the East? No. SEC West deserves to be in the conversation. I'm not sure it's the winner, but I definitely think Chip's right. I mean, oh, I was just depending going on West, yeah. On how on how you think about about LSU, right? Because if you're going to argue it, if you're going to argue the SEC West, you need to be. You probably are thinking LSU is the second best team in that division. Yeah, I, I think would, the East I would is think. or that the margin, just the my SEC. Because you're if you're just going to make it open ended like that, what's the best division in college football? The fact that we have a uh, a tier that includes an LSU, that includes an Ole Miss, that includes a Mississippi State. Um, that include, I mean, Texas A&M and Auburn are at the bottom, and right. and Kentucky just smoked Mississippi State. So you would say that SEC East over SEC West for this season. The, the problem is, and like we love Barton, but Vanderbilt, right, is is still in the East. So that's that's an anchor. Like there's no team in the West that's, that's comparable to Vanderbilt. So Missouri is probably also kind of on that level of the bad SEC West teams, Auburn and AM. I mean, like we saw Missouri play Auburn to overtime in Auburn, so it's hard to, for us to argue they're actually much worse. And fumble out the back of the end zone. Correct, yeah, and miss a field goal uh, right before, you know, to, to win the game as well. 
it kind of depends on how, how good you think Tennessee is, but we have a data point here. We saw Tennessee go into Baton Rouge and smoke LSU. And I think if you're going to argue that the West is the be- is better, you need to have LSU as your number two team. I would put the SEC West ahead of the ACC Atlantic. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that because I think LSU, the way they're playing right now is probably better than Wake, I would think. But also, like, we have a data point there. I mean, Florida State beat LSU, and they're probably the fourth best team in the division. Context does matter. Sure. And there was zero winner in that game. <laughs> That's true. But, I mean, they, they – they that beat them by was a tie. That like was up, all square. They're up by two touchdowns with, with five minutes left and you know gave up some really crazy stuff with a fumble on the goal line. Like I, I just as a rule for me, know. I never take the first game of the season too seriously, no matter what happens. Although the results I tend to are agree with that. But I, I think that the, the thing about the SEC West to me is I don't think Alabama's as good as we're used to seeing Alabama be. And I think that really kind of hurts that division. Because, I mean, Alabama has been the thing carrying the SEC West most of the years as far as being the best division in the league or the country. So when Alabama's kind of dropping off and there's no other elite team, because we've seen the years where Alabama is off, you've got like a generational LSU team. You've got an, you know, or an Auburn team with Cam Newton. Whereas this year, Alabama's off and it's like, all right, now there's a couple other good teams in there, but there's nothing that you're sitting there thinking is great. So I put this out on Twitter a couple days ago, and I I think it's something that we need to talk about. There's a real chance that Georgia is a bigger favorite over Tennessee than Bama is over LSU. Is that a – I don't – No, people are like, you're crazy. No, like like Georgia will be like a four-point favorite over Tennessee and Bama will be like 17. Like, no, guys, right now, in some of these look-ahead markets, they're both two touchdowns. Okay. They're both 14. Like – we see one more data point out of this stuff. Uh, there's a real chance that it's like, you know, Bama's not two touchdowns going in, in the Tigerland. I will say, if Georgia is a two touchdown favorite over Tennessee, I am taking Tennessee. Yeah. I. Well, but it depends on why, because that would also mean that Tennessee probably looked vulnerable this weekend against Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Like if we see Kentucky's offensive line, which has been poor all year run the ball and control the game lines of scrimmage against, against Tennessee. Then we're going to have some real questions about what Alabama's offensive line actually is, right? Are they actually that good? Should they have been able to run the ball better on the ball as a control the game? Cause if, if Kentucky can do it, I know damn sure Georgia can. I based, I'm not saying it can't happen, but based on what I've seen, Kentucky's offensive line is not going to be pushing around Tennessee's defensive front this week. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've been really uncharacteristically bad. <laughs> yep. Weird. Why is that? Are, are there any pieces that have changed from they lost, they lost some guys. They lost their coach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would you would think that that coach would have also led to more improvement um, at, at Alabama. Yeah. But this that's that's a good like data point that you need to look at is uh, same run defense going up against offensive lines with the offensive line coach changing from Kentucky to Alabama. We'll keep an eye on it. Again, one of the biggest games this weekend, Tennessee, Kentucky, like just a, a massive entree, a massive appetizer in Tennessee season to the entree that will be Georgia and Tennessee battling for the SEC East. Uh, all right, one more before we get out of here. This question comes from Jay. says, hey guys, love the show. I haven't missed an episode in more than a year. 
Love that dedication. That's Important question. For us. Yeah. uh important question for for the entire season up to this point michigan has been ridiculed for its cupcake schedule and its week-to-week top five ranking was questioned because of that now that michigan has beaten penn state why isn't a team like ohio state being questioned to that same degree they haven't played another ranked team yet and are gaining first place votes what other than the eye test justifies them being ranked ahead of Michigan, Tennessee, or even Clemson. Thanks. It's the level of the schedule, right? Yeah. Top 25 is an arbitrary endpoint we draw that used to be based when the, the sport had about 100 teams on the top 25, like the top quarter of the sport. We're going to rank the top quarter. That's kind of what the poll is. 25 is kind of a round number. People seem to like it. The issue is that Ohio State's schedule to this point is absolutely harder than Notre Dame's schedule, right? They both played Iowa. Michigan did play Penn State. But Michigan also played Indiana, which I continue to kind of think is the worst Power 5 team east of the Mississippi, right? I know get some blowback for that, but they keep losing games and were very lucky in their wins. Colorado State, Hawaii, and UConn, who are legitimately three of the bottom seven teams teams in the entire sport. Yeah. Yeah. Ohio State schedule is tougher. Like Ohio State has Toledo. Toledo would be the second best team that Michigan would have played. Ohio State also has Notre Dame, which again would be the second best team, I believe, that, that Michigan would have played. So the depth of Ohio State schedule is certainly better. The most impressive win so far is is the Penn State win. So you got to give Michigan credit for that. But also, it's like if you look at metrics, Wisconsin's better than pretty much everybody Michigan's played outside right. of. Penn State, and maybe Maryland, depending on which metrics you want to look at. I mean, I just think it's touchdowns are sweet. <laughs> I get, I understand, like, coming, you're coming off the high of beating Penn State, and you crushed them, and you're feeling great about it, but to pretend that the rest of the schedule hasn't been a cakewalk, I mean, it's Maryland is the second-best team you've played. That was also the closest game you played, and it was, you know, Joel Klatt will tell you it was a 15-point game in the fourth quarter, but Joel will forget to mention that that 15-point game didn't happen until three minutes were left in the fourth quarter. But Ohio State, top to bottom, just it's been a much more difficult schedule. Yeah, there's a Rutgers, but, like, Michigan has played five Rutgers. So, also, if you think we don't criticize Ohio State, please refer to the YouTube video, which is about yes. seven minutes long, where we nitpicked their 40-point win yes. over Iowa by pointing out they have had a recurring issue in the red zone against the better defenses and literally said, if they play this way against Michigan, they will have a chance to lose to Michigan because you have, you're going to have to score some touchdowns. You cannot keep stalling out in the red zone. So I think we're pretty far away from being a anti-Michigan pro-Ohio State podcast. Yeah, for also, somebody who doesn't criticize Ohio State, I sure get yelled at by a lot of Ohio State fans. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, also, if we go back to the win totals, I think we had nobody take Ohio State over and several people take Michigan over. I think it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a lock win. To, it was a lock we win. like this team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I my, preseason, my preseason CFP projection was both Ohio State and Michigan being in. I said they'd both be undefeated when they played each other at the end of the year. I clearly hate both teams. <laughs> Are they going to thump Sparty? I think so. I don't see Sparty getting any stops. But I'm going to go the other way on this. I think Sparty might get a couple stops, just won't score. Yeah. 
Sparty seems to be getting a couple guys back on defense here. Like it's possible that they make McCarthy throw and he misses yeah, it's some passes. Early down, early down success, good against the run, force McCarthy into third and long, obvious passing situations, which Michigan State's obviously not been great at, but at least you have a strength in what you can do. I mean, 22 is bananas. And and rivalry games, rivalry game. I mean, and this is like maybe this is a rivalry game. Anytime the two sides are talking about how much it's not a rivalry, it means it's a rivalry. Also, on the Mel Tucker thing, it's not really likely, guys, that somebody goes from being a top five coach in the sport to like a bottom five coach in the power five year to year without some major like personal life stuff. So I tend to not believe that. I think it's more like last year their record was much better than their actual team was, but they were still a good quality football team. They had a couple special players like Kenneth Walker. This year, they've lost a ton of important contributors to injury earlier in the season on defense. They're getting a couple of them back. They're not – if you judge these programs simply on win-loss, it's just – it's all over the board. You need to look at the internal metrics a little bit more, and who they actually have on the field matters. I think he's probably still a good coach. We, so, I mean, anybody going to lock that up tomorrow? Why would I spoil Find that? out Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern time when we get back together for our week nine locks. I told y'all it's trap week. You got eight ranked teams on the road against unranked teams. Odds makers have six of those eight games as single digit spreads. Somebody's going to get trapped. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. We will let you know where we think that the upsets might be. We will let you know which favorites are going to roll all of it in our week nine locks episode coming up on thursday come hang out with us 11 a.m eastern time youtube.com slash cover three and you can follow him on twitter at tom Fernelli. you can follow him at bud elliott three you can follow me at chip underscore patterson gentlemen thank you very much yeah.